being programmed to chill a show about business crime parapolitics and esoterica with your host jimmy fallon gong This is Crackpot Toberfest 2022 by Programmed Chill, hosted by yours truly, Jimmy Fallon Kong. Crackpot Toberfest is an exploration of the intersection between horror films and the horrors of real everyday life. Horror films are more than just a source of fun thrills. They're a window into the darkened corners of our world. In this series, I hope to explore several films which knew more than they should which point to occulted truths. Through facing our fears, we learn about the world and about ourselves. Just don't stare too long at the shadows. Today, I'm joined by Tanner Boyle. Now, listeners to Program to Chill might recall his appearance on Premium Episode 26, where we talked about Mothman, UFOs, synchromysticism, high strangeness, and intelligence community ties to various paranormal incidents. Now, Tanner is the author of a book, The 14 Influence in Science Fiction, which means he's very well-grounded in Fortiana. He's also, I'm, I'm proclaiming that he is the world expert on Bosco Nedeljkovic. <laughs> Tanner, I would call him the program to chill paranormal understander and correspondent. And he's the guy I'm constantly bothering with new intelligence community ties to things, though, to be fair, he definitely now does that to me, too. <laughs> How are you doing today, Tanner? I'm good, Jimmy. That was uh, that intro was like way too flattering. <laughs> I feel I feel like I got to do the <laughs> I got to do the Keith Allen Dennis thing he does on the farm where he's like. Well, recluse, that's like way too flattering. <laughs> but but thank you. you know. <laughs> well, I think it's all deserved. So, but I mean, yeah, how are you doing today? Are you excited to talk about <laughs> what we're going to talk about? Yeah, yeah. Uh, just in time for uh, a little spooky, spooky ghost story. Uh, we kind of talked about the ghost story appeal of various. 40 in things last time so and i i think uh i think this movie we're going to talk about like completely understands that appeal that's right it almost intentionally evokes it for effect does it not <laughs> yeah oh yeah uh, I, I i think the writer at least was extremely well versed in it yeah no for sure so the thing we're going to talk about today is ghost watch which is, I think it's, I think it's feature length, right? It was like an hour and a half, roughly. Yeah, it's pretty much a clean 90 minutes, I think, yeah. if I recall. And it's like a pseudo-documentary. It aired in the United Kingdom on Halloween 1992. So it was presented as if it were live television, and it really freaked people out, supposedly. Also, like, it's worth... Uh, 
it's worth emphasizing that it was on BBC One, so like hmm. the main BBC channel at uh, its like prime drama spot after the 9 p.m. watershed. So this was like, you know, front and center on Halloween night. And it's kind of incredible that even it even got to that point based on the <laughs> the responses received. But um, I guess I haven't really asked you this point blank yet. Uh, do you like Ghostwatch, Jimmy? Yeah, I mean, okay. I was, I'll say this, just broad level. I was bored probably the first 30 minutes. Not to say I wasn't engaged. It was like, they were basically doing a lot of setup. But like, mm-hmm. the last, maybe the last half hour, I was like, holy shit, this is like pretty compelling, actually. Like, So like, I would say maybe it's a little bit uneven, but like, yeah, I enjoyed it. I was like, ooh, this is spooky. <laughs> yeah. No, I, I, I can... I can feel that, uh, especially um, the first 30 minutes just feels like uh, like modern day ghost hunters or something. Yeah, or just like... Not the interesting parts, though. Like old news coverage, you know, where they would sort of like bounce around a couple talking heads and like sort of, I guess, almost like fill out time by yeah. like mostly stretching a few facts to just sort of last longer. But like that all like very much created like the vibe that this is like real, even though, I mean, we'll talk about <laughs> how yeah. believable it is or not, but <laughs> it does sort of lull the, lull the viewer in those first 30 minutes uh, because yeah. not, you know, not that much interesting <laughs> happens, but uh, yeah. Should I get into like the broad strokes of the plot? Yeah, I think that would be good. So it it sort of starts out, uh, and also I should mention that the cast is primarily like real BBC correspondents and presenters. So the main one is Michael Parkinson, who is a pretty prominent BBC presenter. Um, All of the correspondents, Sarah Green, who's on site, Mike Smith, her real-life husband, is in studio taking calls. Mm-hmm. And Craig Charles, another BBC presenter, is doing interviews on the street. So that's kind of, that's kind of the setup we have. Uh, and they, they, go, they send Sarah Green to investigate a house with, where a mother and two daughters are experiencing uh, poltergeist activity. Um, and they're they're sort of trying to trying to prove that it's real. I think uh, at, at least uh, at least the girls seem uh, the girls and the mother seem upset by the fact that uh, the newspapers are making them out to be like crazy people. Yeah, and then in the contingent of the news anchors. There rain like there's the gamut from like a official talking head who is a official skeptic all the way to a paranormal expert, right? And everyone there is somewhere in between where they're like maybe toying with the idea of like, is this true to like, oh, this is probably like fake. Yeah. So the the main paranormal expert in studio is 
Dr. Pasco, and she's with uh, Michael Parkinson most of the time. I thought, like, I feel like it was super important for her role to, like, blend with, like, the real presenters, and I feel like it did <laughs> in a good way. Yeah. Now, she, she's just an actor, right? It's yeah, like, yeah. She's not actually a paranormal expert. <laughs> so she's an actor... And the mother and two girls are mm-hmm. actors. I mean, that's obvious, I guess. But, yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah. I, I think there's only like, you know, the, I, I'd say more than half of the credited cast is uh, real BBC presenters. If yeah. I remember correctly. No, I wanted to say, okay, real quick. So, like... These being like actual like news presenters, obviously that very much adds to the verisimilitude and the, I guess, illusion, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, that's not exactly like crazy. Like we've seen in the US, like they'll have news anchors, sometimes national ones, like be in a movie for like one scene announcing, oh, the UFOs have landed or something. Yeah. But like, this is like an extended thing. And I was going to say, Tanner, okay, if I were like, sitting down fully paying attention i think i would know that this was not like that this was like a a fictional movie but if i had like flipped to this halfway through and was half paying attention i don't know man i would probably be like what the hell's going on yeah i i think i i feel like i would be a little spooked out too i i don't i don't know where i'd have to jump in to like be like oh this is because at a certain point you can feel like the the like story arc yeah you know, it becomes a little too like obvious but a little too tight a little too pat but like yeah no but like it is true though right because like reality tv hadn't completely like happened yet this came out what what did we say 1992 92 yeah and like some of the conventions that they're probably using, you know, people weren't entirely used to yet. Like, I don't know. I guess I'm a defender for like people who would have been tricked by this. Cause it's like, okay, like they were trying to trick people. So I don't think this is as straight a story of like the British public are a bunch of rubes. <laughs> right. Yeah. And, and I guess it was set up specifically um, kind of similar to another BBC program called Crime Watch, mm. um, but uh, yeah, this this is like you know this is before Blair Witch. Uh, the only other found footage film I can think of before it, although there's probably more, is the McPherson tape, uh, which is a fake alien abduction that kind of passed around. Um, like UFO conventions as like genuine abduction material. Uh, so, uh, but I, but I, I, I think it still might've been passing around those conventions at the time ghost watch came out. I don't know if it was known yet mm. that it was a fake. So like, I don't know, this is like, this is like one of the most prominent found footage things out. And I guess I should just come out and say I'm a found footage freak. Uh, <laughs> it's pretty much my favorite genre. It can be like truly horrible or like pretty decent. I mean, that's the beautiful thing about it. It's, you know, 
So like what would be the best entry in your in your opinion for like found footage stuff? I actually would put Ghostwatch up there. Um but mm-hmm. I think a just because of like uh you know like general response to it that's like exactly what you want to find film to do yeah and if you're if you remember uh Blair Witch also had kind of the same uh attempt at pretending it was real for a while um like the actors weren't allowed to <laughs> to act in anything for like a year or something like that and uh, uh that that may have been cannibal holocausts I don't know. <laughs> it all it all kind of it all kind of melts together in my mind. But uh, yeah, I'd, I'd say this is actually like one of the best entries, which is pretty astounding because it's also one of the first. What about found footage uh, speaks to you? I think it's that uh, mix of fact and fiction. I find it very interesting when the viewer is told, like, this is real. <laughs> we found this. Check this out. You know, it's like uh I I I don't I don't know what it is. Uh it's almost like reminds me of like like forgeries, right? Or like yeah. discovered things where it's just like, hey, check out this weird thing we found. Like, and then it's like such a weird thing where you have to like yeah like examine the text with maybe more care than you normally would or whatever like yeah i can see that yeah and i i think it's also uh, a good genre to make like interesting reflexive comments about like the viewer or like uh like cinema in general Hmm. um because it seems like a trend is to have like uh, found footage films indict the viewer somehow. And this one, this one falls into that category a little yeah, bit. I guess so. And then there's like interesting opportunities to experiment to on purely like a cinematography level. Oh yeah. And I guess in terms of like writing and direction and so forth. Yeah, I, I think it's probably like pretty good screenwriting. Actually, I, I'm not a screenwriting teacher, obviously, but I feel like if you're able to write a good found footage script, you could write any good scripts because found footage scripts are, are like, I, I feel like they'd be incredibly hard to do. Yeah. And like this one, I think, required a deft, skillful hand because like they were constantly cutting between essentially like three or four different like groups mm-hmm. and you didn't tend to get lost and granted it was like they were in this house in london you know where supposedly the haunting was happening then there was outside the home where they were interviewing people then there were like at least like maybe two or three different sections of the studio where they would like talk to different people and so, like, they were cutting frequently, but it felt, like, both realistic in terms of the news, and it felt like the story was advancing in a way that, like, you weren't confused. Yeah, I can see that. Yeah, 100%. So, uh, as the investigation kind of goes on into the 
house with the poltergeist activity. I think their their names are the earlies. Um, uh, things start ramping up at about like let's say halfway through, and then uh, it's discovered that one of the girls is faking some of the um, activity, but yeah they get they get her on camera right and she's like knocking making some of the spooky knocking sounds that they keep hearing yeah um and michael parkinson i feel like michael parkinson is especially like mean to her but maybe that (laughs) yeah is is michael parkinson the one that i said looked like british donald trump yes yeah yeah, yeah. (laughs) viewers you gotta look this look up the just the cover of ghost watch like (laughs) It's funny. He's an insanely British looking man. I mean, he might kind of be what you pictured when I said BBC presenter. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) But, uh, yeah, uh, they start, they start like trying to get the girls to admit that they're, they've been faking everything, but they still swear that the, most of the activity was real. They're just doing what the cameras wanted, which is, you know, it's kind of indicting the viewer again yeah no i mean it's interesting because like we'll get to this idea but like all this modern day ghost watch stuff and ghost hunting it's basically just modern day spiritualism and what was spiritualism back in the day but like mostly faking it with maybe some weird stuff going on possibly in addition to that right yeah Including like, what was that like cracking your toe or like just doing like rapping on the table surreptitiously, just like weird little, you know, almost like parlor tricks to like, almost like get over on the participants. Yeah. Yeah. And, uh, Dr. Pasco, there's like a lot of like, uh, footage shown on the program of her doing like extensive tests on the girls, all of which are like pretty classic spiritualist stuff like uh yeah like what are we talking so so the ghost name is pipes i i should say so i can refer to pipes later on because he sounds like banging pipes is why he's named that Mm. but um uh one of the one of the girls speaks in like this spooky exorcist voice that is supposedly pipes. One of the tests Dr. Pasco does is to see if she can read it. And she can't even under hypnosis, apparently. But, you know, I... <laughs> Which is weird, right? Because it's like, that almost doesn't make sense. Because if she were channeling a ghost, why wouldn't she be able to, like, make this sound with her voice? Yeah, if, you're, if your vocal cords are unable... That, that's been used in... So... I'm kind of jumping ahead, but that's that's also used in the infield poltergeist mm. uh, defense is that, oh, the girl couldn't recreate the voice even under hypnosis. But it's like, you know, if the voice is happening at all, it's got to be uh, a possibility in your vocal cords. Yeah, I guess maybe I'm getting too caught up in the logistics here which is probably a mistake right but i know i mean it's interesting because that's where they go with it and i'm like uh, hey man okay yeah 
what other experiments do they do? So they, they do that one. <laughs> oh man, I got to pull out my notes. I forgot the name of it again. Oh yeah. Cause we were talking about what it's called, right? Yeah. As it's like that one, uh, sort of trance state where you put ping pong balls in your eyes kind of a sensory deprivation thing to uh as seen in the tv (laughs) show hellier right yeah yeah Uh, and i i i think there are many parallels to hellier in this show uh yeah yeah just sort of a a battery of logical tests dr pasco is like pretty convinced that it's a real haunting and uh she's defensive of the girls even after they're caught faking yeah in fact she says the line which astonished me she said <laughs> the best thing we can do is believe them yeah which like okay a little bit later i'm going to dissect how fucked up that is for the for the BBC to say, but uh, just rest assured, we're going to return to that. <laughs> but her her whole thing basically is that like, okay, like some of the phenomenon can't just be the girls faking it or the mom faking it. And like, we shouldn't, even when faced with evidence that they were faking some of it, we can't just throw the whole thing out. Yeah. They've, they've got she's got like a collection of uh household trinkets that have been like oh there's uh there's spoon bending like uri geller pipes bend spoons they mention uri geller too yeah uh and the testing showed that that was from like high heat couldn't have been done by the girls <laughs> kind of thing they also had in the van outside the house but they introduced this romanian british guy who like looks like a vampire a little bit, you know, without makeup. <laughs> I, I don't remember if they say his name, but like he, he was a guy in the Society for Psychical Research. Yeah. 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 Which is a real group that I think we'll talk about maybe a little bit later too. So in relation to that, they have this whole van full of ghost hunting equipment. So what that actually boils down to in the show is like they have infrared cameras, <laughs> which uh, supposedly was pretty like high tech for the time. There wasn't a lot of TV. Actually, I think it's in a Volk. The screenwriter wrote an article where he mentions that it had only previously been used. I find this interesting in uh, like uh, Gulf War footage. It had, it hadn't really been used on uh, civilian television before uh, so i find it very odd that it was in a in a fake ghost hunting documentary that was the first time we got infrared not in a war zone <laughs> interesting well okay so like the the predator right oh yeah, yeah in the predator movie that isn't entirely infrared right that's like sort of it's sort. I think it's sort of infrared, but it's also manipulated a bit yeah. on the back end. Because that's the only one that comes to mind in terms of early. Like that was eighty-seven, but I guess they didn't even have infrared film yet. Mm-hmm. I just looked it up, but like, yeah, no, I mean, very few examples. I think very interesting. There's a portion, like maybe twenty minutes in, where the TV crew is just bobbing for apples. 
<laughs> and that's the that's the time I was sort of referring to where I'm just like, what are we doing here? This is like <laughs> a little bit dragging, but like it, like I think we've established that it is actually required to like like get the buy-in that this is like a real show or at least pretends to be. Oh yeah. So like I think it's effective still. Yeah. Yeah, bombing for apples badly seems like local news to mm-hmm. a T. <laughs> yeah. They do a fake jump scare too, which is fun. Yeah, yeah. Where it was like one news anchor spooking the other one. Oh, this reminds me, Jimmy. What is the uh where does Pipes live? Wyatt Tanner, he lives in the glory hole. <laughs> which like Surely, surely, Tanner. I mean, I know it's the UK, so I, I realized that like maybe, like naming conventions are not the not the same. But like, surely they knew. How could how could they possibly call this a glory hole? <laughs> like, there are kids in this movie. There are kids watching the show. Like, what are we doing here, man? Yeah, I I I don't know. Is that is that like? I don't know. Is it like common in Britain to call your like, I mean, it's like a crawl space, right? Like, yeah, you call that. Maybe some of my British listeners would know, or some of my listeners more acquainted with the conventions of gay pornography, but like, surely, because like porn is old, man. Like, yeah, they, they were calling glory holes. Like, I don't think that. I can trust this in terms of historical accuracy, but I'm pretty sure they talk about glory holes in like James Elroy novels from like the fifties. At least that's in the U S though. So it's just like, yeah, I don't know, man. Surely this has to be some British thing, like what they call cigarettes or something like, come on. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, it's just uh it's it kind of it's kind of puts you off kilter whenever they see it but um it is to to the film's credit it is a spooky glory hole yeah like you said it's a crawl space under the stairs because like the whole house it's like pretty it's a pretty small house so there's like first floor second floor not that many rooms it's like maybe two or three bedrooms a kitchen that's like that's about it like a living room so like bottom floor kitchen you know living room stairs that like that's it and so the glory hole is right off the stairs it's just right there and like i guess the way they did it it's sort of like they sealed up the door so that you couldn't easily go in Mm -hmm. type of thing and yeah specifically so because the mom was trapped down there by something once Oh yeah, that's right. Uh, which, like, also, isn't that where they like a thing like that is where they made Harry Potter sleep when he was like growing up, right? Also, yes. Maybe, maybe glory holes are like super traumatic for like British children. Maybe uh, I don't know, man. <laughs> <laughs> Very strange. <laughs> And then they mentioned walking on the moon. They're like, surely, since we've had someone walking on the moon, that we can figure out if ghosts are real or something. <laughs> There's some line like that that I thought was funny. Yeah. The, what was it? The, uh, the, the official skeptic, he says 
measurability is a metric of provability, which naturally the paranormal expert was super inclined to disagree with him on that. (laughs) I tend to mostly agree with that, so I suppose I would find myself in the skeptic category were I in Ghostwatch. Yeah, I I guess I'd still have some lingering Fortean in me where I'm like, I don't know, there's got to be some stuff that just like doesn't work in a lab setting, right? But you're probably right to (laughs) me. Well, no, but I think it's valuable to have someone there who insists on like, yeah, like lab settings not being like the end all. Yeah. Yeah, I agree with that. And then also another, I just have a couple more notes. So yeah. there's uh, one of the girls wears a Mickey Mouse shirt. That just seems notable. I That blew right by me. I didn't even notice that. I don't know if it's the whole time. It might just be when they like get ready to go to bed or something, they might change or mm-hmm. something. But, and then let's see here. So you were about to go into pipes. Is that? Yeah, so after the girls, or one of the girls is caught faking, uh, they attempt to start to wind down the program, being like, it was all a hoax, we fell for a hoax. Case closed. We revealed the hoax, yeah. And then, you know, like, less than five minutes later, one of the girls is, like, badly scratched up by something, Uh and it, it's pretty clear they're not self-inflicted, even to the viewer, I would say. Yeah, well, I mean, the newscasters are sort of like, okay, she did that. Some of them are like, she did that to herself. But then, you know, like you said, there's not like blood in the, her fingernails. Like, they're sort of like freaking out Yeah. as to like who did it or whatever. Yeah, and then and at that point, that's where stuff just starts ramping up in the house. <laughs> yeah. Things uh, really take a turn. <laughs> things start flying. There's a lot more channeling. The lights are always going on and off, but mostly they end up just off at a certain point. Yeah. Luckily, the infrared comes in to help, right? <laughs> yes. Oh, and we should mention, while all this is going on, they're taking calls in the studio, and Mm. they're getting very similar reports from all across England, which is odd, of a bald man with no eyes wearing a blue dress, which is, (laughs) that seems maybe too specific for an actual ghost, but... uh, yeah, I would have a hard time seeing a ghost and then zeroing in on the no eyes. I feel like I would be too distracted by the ghost part. Yeah. <laughs> um, but th- th- that's just to say that that's happening while, uh, as the program is going on. Um, and eventually, once things have ramped up a lot, Parkinson and Pasco take a call from someone i think it's like uh someone formerly in the same neighborhood who knew wasn't it maybe even the former landlord or something yeah i i think so because it was someone like in a position to know the owner of the house to know that they were like sub sub leasing or like taking a 
order, I guess. Yeah. And he tells this whole story about uh, a guy named Raymond Tunstall, uh, who believed himself to, I'm going to quote an article here, who believed himself to be haunted by a figure of local lore, a 19th century child murderer named Mother Seddons. And eventually Tunstall kind of succumbs to madness. He kills himself in the basement and uh, is eaten by cats. (laughs) (laughs) And it's heavily implied that this guy is Pipes, who pops up, I would say subliminally, honestly, throughout the film. And like, you know, uh, I, I genuinely have to refer to the article sometimes to catch his appearances. There's, there's a decent article listing all known instances where Pipes shows up. And it's like, it's like so slight sometimes, right? <laughs> he'll, he'll be like in the dark background uh, where you have to like zoom in. I think he's even in a clip where they're examining the footage and they're looking at the wrong thing. They're mm-hmm. focusing. They're focusing on the wrong thing, and Pipes is like a little to the left. <laughs> yeah. Uh, uh, just like I don't know. I I really like how he's sprinkled throughout the film. Yeah, I definitely missed almost all of the instances of Pipes when I was watching. Because <laughs> I because I looked at that article and I was just like, oh man, I missed like all of this. I'd say there's like only two that are like you can see him without trying, <laughs> if yeah. that makes sense. Yeah, so they begin to get the idea that this Pasco suggests that it's some kind of entity that's uh, haunting every occupant of the space and she says it may go into prehistory which i found interesting like <laughs> something like truly ancient that's like haunted that place and tortured an individual living there for centuries which almost sort of gives a pass to pipes and or mother sentence if you think about it like <laughs> yeah it does because it, it, it wasn't them in control it was some primordial ghost thing which i mean if we're talking just british sins and crimes like i don't know about that man (laughs) yeah i mean we'll get to that yeah (laughs) i'm excited for this
So I'm trying to think where I left off. Things are kind of flying everywhere. Yeah, there's the there's the call about pipes, and they sort of arguably reveal the true identity of pipes. Yeah. Oh, and it also in the call, I believe that they say that pipes, this guy who is pipes, had paranoid fantasies that he molested children, that he cross-dressed, heaven forbid. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, and just like there's like that whole psychiatric angle. And then from there, things even more escalate, like you said, to just everything's going crazy. The call-ins are going crazy. And yeah. What what I find interesting is that uh, they say this, they say at some point that their uh, switchboards have jammed in the program, mm-hmm. which is eerily what happens in real life, uh, which we'll get to. As all of this is happening, everybody on site in the house is kind of getting trapped in some spot. All the lights are out. The studio starts experiencing interference. And eventually, I'll, I'll just come out and say it, that the uh, the they realize that they're doing a sort of mass seance through the televisions allowing the pipes entity to go all across England, make contact throughout, uh, and essentially possessing a large swath of people. They're doing the Goku spirit bomb where everyone is giving their psychic energy to pipes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Pretty much exactly that. It kind of looks like that. Things in the studio start flying around. Lights, lights blow out. Yeah, the lights keep blowing out. That's always freaky. And then... Um, well, there, there's that one point where, like, suddenly everything is fine in the house. Like, in the studio, they're looking at the house. And, like, the lights are on. And they're just chilling, like, playing a game or something. And they're like, oh, look, everything's fine. And then, to their horror, they realize that that's, like, old footage. Yeah. And yeah. that very much, like, they could be, like, getting fucked up in the dark. Like, you know, they could be hurt or something. And, like, they're just like, uh Yeah. And I, I, I find it interesting that it's, like, uh, a painting that we see fly off the wall is still on the wall. And that's how they realize that it's yeah. not live. And, like, there are just snippets in the outside area of of the house where it's, like, you know, the ghost hunting camera or... Uh, van and everything and you see like the police coming you see like ambulances coming and you're just like oh shit what's going on yeah eventually things come to a close with uh the studio being dark seems like michael parkinson's alone there's like wind blowing in the studio (laughs) yes somehow i i really like that uh one of those like uh I guess you'd call it a steady cam on a on like a track. It's just going along by itself. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and he's he's looking for a camera to talk into. He's really dazed and he reveals that he is in fact now possessed by pipes because he mm. recites a nursery rhyme compulsively, which is the which is what pipes famously does you know pipes he famously does that (laughs) 
Yeah, it was at the fee five foe phone, that one, right? Yeah, yeah. I don't know. There, there's something about a the, it ending with a beloved BBC presenter being possessed <laughs> that is very unsettling. It, it does not end on a good note. <laughs> no, and it, you're definitely left with like, oh, is that the end? Because like. I super pirated this movie and I was just like, did it like cut out early or is that just the end? Like, and it's like, Oh yeah, no, that's, that's the end. Like, <laughs> so that that's, that's kind of the plot. The fascinating part is that a lot of what occurs in the film uh, extended to the real world. Mm, yeah. So, so what happened in the real world? So like in the film, the, the BBC switchboards get jammed because there are so many complaints of people complaining that it's too scary. They're calling to confirm that it's not real. I love the idea of being like, hey, this is too scary. Can you turn it off? <laughs> yeah, well, I, I like the idea of like calling up, like, I guess the American equivalent would be PBS and being like, yo, is, is what you're playing right now, like, actually real? Yeah. Uh, but I was going to say, too, like, the whole narrative about, like, oh, a million people called in, because that's what the number you frequently see, like, a million people called. Yeah, yeah. But, like, that makes so much more sense when you realize that, like, in the show itself, they are telling you, call in, tell us your ghost stories, right? Yeah. So, like, to a certain extent, it makes sense that people would call because the show is telling you to call and then it starts really taking a turn, you know, like it is this interesting dynamic where like they're messing with the conventions of television and breaking them. Right. Mm -hmm. So it sort of makes sense, I guess. Yeah. Yeah. And I feel like the estimated viewer counts are pretty high also just because of when it premiered um yeah like 9 p.m halloween night on bbc one i'm not british but that seems like what would be on the telly at in at my house in 1992 seems like prime time yeah but uh the the response to it afterwards was kind of brutal in the press um, a lot of people accuse them of pulling a hoax and I don't think I'd necessarily call it a hoax. I think it was just a drama film, but, uh, influenced by hoaxes, like they get in trouble for not saying that it's fake enough, but it's introduced with like directed by you know, BBC Screen One. Yeah. And apparently they were on the press circuit just advertising it as a drama in the weeks before. So I, I think, I don't think they really expected this kind of reaction. Yeah, like definitely when you get something more closer to a hoax. I mean, I'm just throwing out like Borat or something that you're specifically hiding what they're trying to do hmm. and they're not it doesn't seem like they're hiding it in this case yeah you don't you don't usually get like cast credits at the end of your, 
at the end of your uh, documentary presentations, yeah, especially with someone credited as ghost. But <laughs> you know, I can I can still understand if you only watched like the middle third or something. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, so th- this actually had demonstrable effects on children at the time. It's, uh, there's an article in the British Medical Journal a couple of years later documenting uh, cases of PTSD from Ghost Watch specifically, which is kind of insane. Interesting. Like, we were talking in the DMs, but like, I was a little wussy, sucky baby when I was little. I would have been scared the hell out of this. I don't know if I would have gotten quote unquote PTSD from it, but like this would have freaked the hell out of me if I watched it for sure. Yeah. I, I, I think, um, I think it seems like the young were especially susceptible to this. Which makes sense. Yeah. I, I think I also would have been freaked out about it. Uh, if if pipes was more visible for more of the film, mm. I, I think I would have not slept for days. But <laughs> um, yeah, they experienced I think sleep disturbances, flashbacks, uh, something called psychic numbing. I don't know what that is. It was all a bit too medical for me. But uh, I don't know, that doesn't sound medical, but I mean, <laughs> yeah, but uh, it's it's just interesting that it like British Medical Journal is not like not not woo woo, yeah, yeah, that's like the medical journal, and it was documenting these cases, uh, where children were truly disturbed by this, and there is actually one suicide attributed to it a Martin Denham who was reported to have, he's an 18 year old with the mind of a 13 year old in the press. And uh, he was reportedly hypnotized by the program. Mm. And I, I found that that like was kind of eerie with um, some of the call-ins on the actual show. Cause I think at some points they're like, there's a parent calling in he's like, I can't get more kids to look away from the telly. They're hypnotized. And, you know, that was the worst accent I've ever done. Uh, it seems serviceable. I mean, I've long maintained that although I would like to do accents, I'm I'm really bad at them. So I think you did a good job. <laughs> that sounded like pity points. Uh, I tried Kennedy the other day in an episode that hasn't come out yet. And holy shit, it was <laughs> really bad. <laughs> I don't know. I, even a bad Kennedy is a good Kennedy. Yeah. <laughs> I think. But so, yeah, this Denim kid committed suicide six days after the show aired. And he became like obsessed with the show, started sleeping with flashlights, and got freaked out that the central heating made banging noises like pipes would do. And just like, you know, I can understand why this kid was freaked the hell out. Yeah, no, for sure. So definitely like they channeled something, whether it's just freaking out a bunch of children. 
and unfortunately, at least one killed themselves. Yeah, kind of uh, frightening real-world consequences that, you know, kind of follow through with the, the like, conclusion of the show. Like, it actually did shoot some kind of bad energy out of the television and into the British public, or at least a subset of them. Which, luckily, I mean, it's not like the British media have ever been run by bad people who specifically try to channel bad energy and do anything nefarious to the public. That's never happened before. Yeah, they've famously never done that. (laughs) But uh, the BBC initially refused to apologize. And then they were kind of like... We sort of apologize, but not entirely. We think that there was enough warning that the program was fake. Your kids shouldn't be watching TV after 9 p.m. anyway. Uh, But eventually the Denham family fought a legal battle with the British Standards Commission and they eventually had to listen to the family's complaint. I never heard of any monetary compensation, but the BBC, the, the uh, Standards Commission eventually ruled that the BBC did not give enough warning and the program aired too early in the night. So I'm not sure what that did. It might have changed how programming was done in the future, but uh, they were, it's not like they were going to do another ghost watch uh, based on the response. Uh, it was pretty much shelved after that. Uh, it, it, it's only like in, you know, it only has a cult following now because of like a few who remembered it happening, but it's honestly kind of astounding that it ever came out again, that it ever got out of the vaults. Yeah. Uh, cause they, they kind of had to, had to put their tail between their legs after, um, all the complaints and, you know yeah and like the uh the guy who wrote it i don't i forget if i don't think he directed but like maybe he did Stephen volk uh he had written several horror films and he would go on to write several more right yeah yeah and i i'd say he's a pretty talented screenwriter i know he's done he did one movie called gothic about uh mary shelley writing frankenstein Mm. at that party you know you know what i'm talking about yeah the famous one like lord byron was there i think and so yeah uh, percy shelley i guess and a few other people and he also wrote a screenplay about the uh witch nanny that i wasn't familiar with until uh we kind of came across it that definitely seems like along the lines of what he likes to write. It's all like semi interested in like real paranormal phenomenon. Um, he seems pretty well versed in it. I think it, he wrote an article for the Fortean Times, kind of as a retrospective of Ghost Watch, and mentions reading about like paranormal. St- like poltergeist stuff, stuff about mass hysteria and mass hallucination. Uh, and it all kind of culminated in 
the ghost watch script yeah well i mean that would probably be a fine time to talk about baby farming ah yes uh because okay so mother Seddens, who is supposedly the entity haunting pipes before pipes became the ghost i guess she was a baby farmer and i didn't i okay I didn't know all of the stuff about baby farming, so I went down sort of a little rabbit hole on baby farming. But, like, the premise basically is that it was, like, a system in the UK like wet nurses, except it was, like, they actually took custody of the baby, and the baby lived at the house of the baby farmer, rather than, like, the wet nurse coming to your house to, like, either live or just, you know spend time and apparently there was this big scandal because a lot of these baby farmers would take kids from like middle class upper class houses and then just like neglect them and or kill them Mm -hmm. and then just like keep collecting money for it and it was like this whole scandal and i think it came like there was more than one basically but like baby farming the idea that like you hand your kid over you get them back when they're like two or three or something like first of all just weird and bizarre but then like this like horrific like side to it super fucked up and weird only in the uk right (laughs) and i i guess it would make sense that a baby farmer was the vessel for the primordial uh evil entity thing yeah and then so she haunted pipes and then pipes i guess got into cross-dressing and child molestation and then killed himself etc yeah very spooky i don't love the implications there of the like having your personality taken over but uh you know i guess it was time period yeah no we were talking in the before the show about like how Ghostwatch low-key problematic on transgender stuff with Pipes being a uh, cross-dressing pedophile ghost, basically. Rather than, I don't know, say, like, a British nobleman. And you mentioned, too, he's like a blue-collar worker. (laughs) Yeah, he was like... So it's just like, okay, yeah, there are predators in every social class, but a certain social class tends to get away with it. Yeah. Uh <laughs> yeah. And I'm trying I'm trying to think if there were other real world things that I'm missing. Oh, I wanted to ask real quick because I think we I mean it's only it's a relatively short section of the film, but before things really take off and get crazy in mm-hmm. the film, uh one of the guys, one of the news anchors, he like he goes to a park. And he interviews a couple people, but he interviews a spiritualist. And he, like, they talk about how, like, in the neighborhood, someone was stabbed, how they kept finding, like, cats that were killed. Oh, yeah. And this spiritualist guy supposedly did, like, an exorcism. And they were talking about, like, this sense of evil in the area and, like, spiritual decay. And, like, it's just interesting that they, like, explicitly link, like, spiritualism to this whole thing, right? Yeah. Because we talked about how that's 
kind of what they're doing the entire time but like to make it to bring it up specifically is like very interesting to me yeah it is like kind of super uncomfortable to i mean the compare this is where i kind of compare it to hellier is like implicating the viewer in a a like mass seance ritual that you were unaware of Mm. uh and then all hell breaking loose i guess is the i mean is 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 the end of ghost watch the goal of hellier jimmy (laughs) i mean okay here's the thing if you want to invoke pan and summon pan by all means go for it no don't go for it but like if that's your goal that's cool but like don't bring people along into doing into attempting to get them to come to that conclusion without prior knowledge of that's you know where you're headed yeah like i i don't know i do have some issues with that do you know what i just noticed too what pipes and pan are kind of similar how so speak on it well like pan plays the pipes right like pipe flute that makes sense and having basically a just rapey vibe yeah well and you know the primordial thing just like i i still latch on to how she said it probably existed in prehistory you know like yeah how how could you possibly know that (laughs) <laughs> is this pan <laughs> i know there's like absolutely no evidence for any yeah. of it <laughs> no well because that's the thing right with like all ghost hunting you're basically inventing evidence and none of it's based in reality and so like you're basically like setting up a scenario where you might inadvertently be tapping into something that actually is out there but like you've made it up so like it doesn't all lead to this. This is all stuff you've just contrived to get to the point where like a freaking ghost might pop out, you know, like, yeah, this yeah. isn't where the, the path took you. You set up everything to get to that point. Yeah. Yeah. Sort of, sort of working backwards. Secretly yeah. Kind of thing. Exactly. And then bringing uh, unsuspecting people along. It would be like setting up a ghost house but then not telling people that you were bringing them into it. Like, that would be really like fucked up and weird to do. Yeah. It'd be kind of cruel. <laughs> I just imagine like in a ghost house and the first thing pops out and you just like punch it in the face. It'd, it'd be truly scary. Like that uh, Nathan for you one where they fake, uh, <laughs> they fake the uh, viral infection in the haunted house. To make oh, it the man. scariest. You know what I'm talking about? Yeah, I freaking love that. Holy shit. Are you watching the rehearsal, by the way? Yeah, I'm only like three episodes in, but uh, it's kind of like pure undistilled Nathan Fielder, which is yeah. great. It's like less funny. Dude, I'm so loving the direction that the rehearsal is going. Dude, he's like getting into like gang stalking is real. I'm doing it. <laughs> yeah. I freaking love it, man. Yeah. I I was definitely on board once we had the the like numerology guy 
who crashed oh, his yeah. car at 100 miles per hour or whatever. His scion. <laughs> <laughs> Miracle status. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, that was in his side, though. Sorry. <laughs> um, okay. Well, so now maybe would be a good time, too, to talk about the Real World Society for Psychical Research. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So they specifically bring them in early on in the show to establish their ghost hunting bona fides, I guess. And they don't really play a role past that. They just sort of bring out, bring out this guy that looks a little bit spooky and they're like, yeah, they're here to make sure everything's like real. Yeah. I find it, I find it interesting that Dr. Pasco and her partner who are parapsychologists aren't like attached to anything like that yeah they don't explicitly say that they are part of the spr which is weird because they absolutely would be in real life (laughs) yeah especially with like the it being based on the infield poltergeist right that role was filled by spr members yes so spr in the real world we're talking it was started by academics and journalists i use okay both real and woo academics and journalists who were linked to cambridge university the early members were very interesting to say the least we're talking spiritualists swedenborgians guys into automatic writing guys into dowsing rods, theosophists, members of the Cambridge Secret Society, the Apostles, which I have to then bring up the fact that in the Apostles were several members of the Cambridge Five, the Soviet spy ring. Mm. (laughs) To my knowledge, I don't think any of them were in the SBR, though. Uh, Also, the famous psychologist William James associated with Uh. the... Society for Psychical Research. Uh, also, the known pedophile Lewis Carroll. Not great. Really? Yeah. I don't think I knew that. Not a founding member, but a member nonetheless. Yeah. Um, there were also some real scientists. <laughs> Obviously, the line was not very clear back then, or now, I guess. But uh, <laughs> one of the scientists invented... This guy named William Crooks, he invented vacuum tubes uh, that would lead to essentially like television and a bunch of other technology. Uh, One of the guys who invented the thing that basically led to radio, one of the components needed to like pick up on radio waves. The SPR in general, they studied hypnotism, ghosts, seances. They actually created most of the terminology that would later become used to describe psychic research, like the term telepathy, a bunch of the other terms too. Like chances are, if it's some Greek word for, you know, quasi-Greek word for something, like the SBR probably coined it. Yeah. I, I find it super interesting that members were involved in the start of mass media inventions. Mm-hmm. Don't you find that a little... Yeah. <laughs> I don't know if I'd call it unsettling, but it's it feels like there's certain resonances there that aren't sitting well with me. 
Listen, from what I've learned of the early days of radio in in Great Britain, no reason to be concerned. Not at all. (laughs) Also, the SBR studied, specifically studied, dissociation. Mm. Now, I don't like that, Tanner, because MKUltra research very much focused on dissociation. And there is this whole component of MK Ultra where like there obviously there's the drug aspect of it. Lord knows we've talked about, you know, certain elements, but like there is a ton of evidence that a lot of MK Ultra research was just doing spiritualism stuff. Mm, yeah. And like I don't really know what to make of that. It freaks me out, and I'm still sort of digging along those lines but like holy shit <laughs> yeah i can definitely see how that would be the case based on like um you know certain like like the states that people are put into from like uh like a ouija board experience and uh I, I think specifically of like the philip experiment do you know this no what's that I think it was SPR members that held a seance to specifically create a tulpa named Philip. No. And apparently it was successful. They made, they made Philip and he'd respond to them as like a totally new person. Kind of real, like uh, if you've seen the film, empty man, it's real empty man vibes. Oh, I don't like that. I, I don't like it either. I don't like tulpas. I don't like thought forms. <laughs> I don't know if I even believe in them. Don't like them. <laughs> I mean, and then Lord knows there are, it isn't super well documented, but there are strong rumors that a lot of the MK Ultra research, like later on, drifted very much into psychic research. So a lot of the Stargate horseshit. Well, it remains to be seen whether it's bullshit, right? But like, yeah, that's sort of where things went after the immediate like LSD uh, hypnosis stuff, which probably didn't end, but separately, then they were very much looking at psychic research. So yeah, like SPR was into both sides of that before MKUltra. So it sort of like raises the question whether MKUltra was just like, doing SBR stuff, but actually with a laboratory, maybe, I don't know. I'm asking questions. Yeah, no, I'd f- I find that really interesting to like, uh, try to find out if like certain MKUltra projects utilized like SPR documents and studies. Like that'd be, that'd be like the find of, That'd be an incredible find, and I would not be surprised by it. Mm-hmm. Like, I, based on some of the connections, <laughs> I wonder if like that was what like what Tavistock was up to. Lord knows, it's hard to figure out what was going on there. Yeah, and then like in Ghostwatch, we see some of the like research that that Doctor Pasco is doing on the girls, quote unquote. And mm-hmm. do they not look a little bit like weird experiments, right? Not like one of the setups she has her in is it looks like that uh, purported picture of Leonard Cohen at mm-hmm. McGill, like 
stuff wrapped around his ears, eyes covered kind of thing. I think they're even in like a, are they in like a tiny pool of water or am I? <laughs> um, I don't know if the ghost watch one was. I may be projecting that. <laughs> neither I, Leonard Cohen wasn't either in the famous picture anyway, but like th- that's where the experiments ended up going. So <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Very strange. I may, I may be inserting John C. Lilly stuff into it too early. <laughs> <laughs> Real dolphin hours. <laughs> but yeah, it it is. It does just look like uh, Lynn Pascoe's using the Ewan Cameron playbook. Yes, and we all know he was in the UK before he went to Canada. So. Oh, I completely forgot that actually. That's right. But you're you're right. Mm-hmm. I don't like that. <laughs> I don't like it either, man. <laughs> Let's see here. So I think all my notes on the show we talked about. So from here. Ghostwatch in general, right? It's based on largely based on a real world case the enfield poltergeist right yeah it's it sort of has a similar dynamic to um the family and ghost watch where uh, it's a mother and two of her four children uh there's not four children at ghost watch but even in like infield documentaries it mainly you barely see the other two kids it's mainly the mother and the two daughters Margaret and Janice, who experienced most of the poltergeist phenomena. And we're, we're talking like, like you can watch Ghost Watch and get a sense of what happened in the infield case. It's pretty much like beat for beat, the same thing. Hmm. Like stuff being thrown, girls getting scratched, thrown out of bed. They, they recreate a picture of one of them being levitated out of bed or being thrown and it, it it's kind of like a direct reference to a famous infield polter famous infield photograph and uh yeah they like i said they also did the voice thing and a lot of people kind of came to the conclusion that it was a hoax uh, SPR itself investigated, but it was kind of split on whether the case was legitimate or not. Mm. Um, you've got uh, should we should I say his name? <laughs> yeah, no, I think we should talk about him, and then we'll like we can talk about him here, but then we'll like do the broader thing later. I think if that makes sense. Gotcha. So, so the major book on Enfield is This House is Haunted by an SPR member named Guy Leon Playfair. Uh, and he and another researcher named Maurice Gross probably spent the most time in the house. Um, it's just, I, I think I read it was like almost 500 hours in the house with some overnights uh, investigating the case. And I can't... I don't know. You, to me, I feel like even if I had like a poltergeist doing things to me, I wouldn't be like, yeah, 
you, you researchers come into my house, watch this, stay the night, uh, watch me all night. Like, I, I don't think I'd do that. Yeah, no, I mean, like, no, like, absolutely not. I would, first of all, I, if I was getting haunted by it, something, I would freaking move. I'm sorry. <laughs> Second, like, no, I'm not letting strangers into my house. Um, like, ever. Like, no, uh, no way. So, like, the, that's the thing with some of this stuff, with some of the hauntings and so forth. Like, yeah, I'm disinclined to say, oh, they're all making it up. But, like, some of these people are kind of weird for, like, doing this in the first place, just playing along yeah. with it. Like, if I were being haunted and I couldn't move, I would suffer in silence. I don't think I would let people come and, like, record it. Yeah, I I think I'm in the same camp. Uh, uh, yeah, I've, I and I I think that's I think that's even if there was real phenomenon early on, I think the girls eventually, with all the attention from the SPR researchers, kind of felt like they had to do ghost things to make sure it continued. Um, yeah, and I I think that's where. S- skeptics of the case really you know are like eh, i don't know you, all of this could have been done by them like definite um like the, there's bbc documentary makers who were convinced by the case at least and they got like minor things on film like i, I think there's uh like certain thing thrown on film where it's like inconclusive of whether one of the girls did it or not but let, let me let me ask you this just in broad not specific to Anfield and the poltergeist tanner do you believe in ghosts <laughs> um i think so uh hopefully this doesn't make uh this doesn't ruin my street cred but uh, I, I think I believe in ghosts in some instances, but I don't think they're ever as active as popular culture would have us think. It's more of like a, I don't know. It feels more subtle. Yeah, no. Well, I'll, I'll join you on this one. Okay. I think ghosts are real. Not only do I think ghosts are real. I, well, I would say I don't think they're very common. I don't think people see him that much. I think probably most of the time when people talk about it, they're probably like faking it or whatever. But, you know, Mormons, right? They have a downright Confucian level reverence for like their ancestors. Yeah. And my family, right? Pioneers, right? People who knew all the famous church leadership. So like, one of my ancestors, I might cut some of this, but like one of my ancestors was married by Brigham Young, as in like he did the ceremony. So just like, oh, really? Yeah. And like some of them like knew Joseph Smith. So it's just like going back a ways. It's not that big world. Like anyone, like anyone living there would have at least seen, you know, in Utah would have known and seen Brigham Young once in a while. But mm-hmm. 
Which is to say, not that I have sus family ties, because like I said, literally anybody would have seen the governor at some point, you know, whatever. The point being... No, I'm sorry, Jimmy. I have to cut ties now. Canceled. Okay. <laughs> um, so there are family, like we have family stories of like ghosts, like seeing ghosts. And like Mormons will frequently see ghosts somewhat more than normal but usually it's always a very benign thing where it's like yeah we saw grandma after she died and she was just like smiling and saying it's okay you know that's the kind of like yeah average mormon ghost story which is like nice and not horrifying (laughs) see those are the things i'm inclined to believe because like I don't know if you followed, like, after the tsunami in Japan, there were a bunch of, like, experiences like that where people would see their relatives one last time that were actually, you know, dead, lost at sea somewhere. Hmm. Um, Like, I find that stuff extremely compelling. Yeah. And a lot of it's, like, corroborated where it'll be, like, yeah, there, there was a woman there. And he said something to her, you know. Uh, Interesting. Yeah. That's the stuff I'm inclined to believe. I'm not as sure about poltergeists. Right. Well, real quick. So we'll get to poltergeists in a second. But like, so ghosts, like, I believe that like occasionally maybe you can see a loved one. Yes. And then separately, do I think that there can be ghosts for like really traumatic, like murders or something? Yes, actually. Like, I'm totally showing my ass for being not a strict materialist here. But who cares? This is Ghostwatch. This, this is, is Crackpot Toberfest. Exactly. This is, we're doing spooky stuff. It's October. So, <laughs> um, do I think that sometimes there can be ghosts for, like, crimes of the past? Yes, 100%. Absolutely. And... Do I think that America is literally haunted? Yes. Yes, I do. Due to all of the many crimes that were never made right, never at any point was there anything approaching justice for, like, the majority of, like, huge, like, entire, like, Indian nations just wiped out. Like, do you think that's not going to cause some fucking hauntings? Like, yeah, I think so. That's why, like, The Shining is always pointing to that. Yeah. Yeah. Things of this nature. So, like, do I think that there are negative ghosts, too? Like, yes, just probably not that often. Yeah. Not not to not to mention just, like, the, like, literal, physical bad vibes that that causes. And I feel like that can influence uh, sort of the perception of, like, the psychic area of a space. Yes. Yeah, like the bad, I think probably bad vibes is the most like tangible, well, it's not tangible, but like it's the way it manifests most of the time. Yeah. 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 Um, And then, okay, so poltergeists are a different thing, arguably. Obviously, it's Mm -hmm. like somewhat related, but like you definitely know more about this than me, but like what are the differences in like just a high level between ghosts and poltergeists so i i'm more from like I, they're usually compared to like a residual haunting which is like a, 
I'm sounding like, you know, the ghost hunters spiel verbatim. I think they say this a lot. Uh, like a residual haunting will be like a uh, certain point in time and person being replayed like over and over like a tape. Uh, not necessarily interacting with the world around it. Yeah. And uh, whereas uh, poltergeists seem to have some level of consciousness, kind of a discarnate entity that can interact with the physical world around it. It'll throw things, it'll turn lights off. Um, often they're attributed to like real people, but I know in a lot of instances, it's kind of implied that they're faking being a real person. Like there's some level of trickery mm-hmm. involved. I'd highly recommend uh, George Hansen's The Trickster and the Paranormal for, for that mm-hmm. uh, to pretty much anyone. Now, can you speak to the weird sort of like connection between like prepubescent girls and poltergeists? I cannot. <laughs> I find the whole thing kind of sus. <laughs> <laughs> right. For lack of a better term. But, uh. Well, so like the general idea being that like the people maybe most perceptive to poltergeists or prepubescent girls Mm -hmm. and like and or maybe they are the ones manifesting them in the first place yeah it's not super clear right yeah it feels like uh you know like the female hysteria trope but you kind of like place it in a separate entity but still kind of blame blame the girl for it uh yeah i'm not sure how i feel about it either uh but i i will admit that it does seem to be a pubescent girl it's like a recurring meme of it being tied to the them specifically yeah like a wide wide variety of poltergeist cases uh, there's a pretty good podcast I'd recommend called The Battersea Poltergeist. It's like half uh, heads, half drama, but it, it'll give you a pretty good understanding of like a, a poltergeist case in England. Because it was before Enfield, but it kind of follows the same tropes. Uh, and a lot of poltergeist manifestations follow the same tropes of like, girl has poltergeist experience researchers come accused of faking and then it goes away when they're an adult but as an adult they still claim that it was all real kind of thing right that was a big tangent i'm sorry no 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 you're good and then of course there was the poltergeist movie Hmm. written by steven spielberg lord knows we've heard some things about him (laughs) and it of course has like a younger girl as sort of the i guess the main focus and then separately there was in the same series poltergeist 3 which is not entirely clear what happened but some people suspect that the actress the prepubescent girl might have been raped and died as a result in poltergeist 3 
Really? I mean, on the, yeah, like during the filming or something. And it's like, kind of like, it's been a while since I looked into the case, but like, just weird fucking shit with the Poltergeist series, man. Like, I don't yeah. know what's going on there. Well, like, the there's also the whole, the first film was cursed also, famously. Yeah. Because they used real skeletons. Which, like, what the hell, man? <laughs> Why? I think the answer was it was cheaper than an anatomical model. I guess. But which, like... I don't know if that should be the case. I feel like we should make bones more expensive, just arbitrarily, to prevent them from being used. It's probably cheaper to shoot someone in a movie than to, like, use, like, a freaking squibs or something. But that doesn't mean you should. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's, you're completely correct. <laughs> <laughs> okay, and then we'll move on from Poltergeist. But, like, I have to also throw in there the whole Kenneth Grant thing. Mm. Fixation on prepubescent girls. Like as like a vehicle for like tapping into certain powers it appears in his magical writings and then it also like like there's there's something here i don't know if it's even real but like there's sort of a recurring fixation on this in different like different like concepts that like freaks me out is what i would say yeah. Does Grant talk about Poltergeist specifically? No. Not the movie, but the concept? N- well, not to my knowledge. Mm. Um, and of course, he wrote like 30 books, and I've only read like three or four, <laughs> unfortunately. Yeah, that is a little unnerving that it, it finds the same focus. Yeah. Uh, I don't like that. I don't like it, man. I'm I'm trying to get a new catchphrase for situations like this, and I <laughs> I, I th- I've kind of settled on um, this can only mean good things, um, <laughs> but in a sarcastic way. Uh, that's good. Uh, <laughs> no, 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 I like that. Let's see. <laughs> yeah, but then it like does like then it doesn't work if it's like too dark. <laughs> yeah, that's yeah. <laughs> hmm. Yeah, we'll have to. I also got to get the like uh, delivery correct. That's a good point. Let's see. We talked about Playfair. We talked. Was there more with the Enfield stuff? Oh, just kind of a final note uh, on Enfield. The movie, The Conjuring 2, is also based on it. That's right. I've never seen it, but. Um, Interestingly, I don't think a Guy Leon Playfair character is in it. Uh, but Timothy Spall plays Maurice Gross. Interesting that they would not include Playfair, right? Yeah. I mean, he's an interesting looking dude, too, from what I can tell. Uh, and uh, apparently Playfair was mad because the Warrens, like... Uh, involvement in the case was like way overblown and i have to imagine it was because they're like you know a bunch of grifter hucksters (laughs) but uh yeah great that we have an entire film franchise based on those two (laughs) 
we will get back to Playfair in a little bit here. Coming to see 
right. So does it make sense now for me to go into the Jamie Savile stuff, do you think? Oh, yeah, absolutely. All right. So I sort of have this thing here, and it sort of... (laughs) Feel free to jump in is what I'm saying. Um, Okay. All right. So I went a little bit... I I feel like a maniac because I started looking at Jimmy Savile um, specifically due to the pipes stuff. Mm -hmm. And then at a certain point I was like, I need to like draw an end point because this is looking like it would turn into some sort of Jimmy Savile series or something. And I didn't want to do that. So I focused very much on Jimmy Savile's like the period of his life before he became most well-known for being like a maniac sex freak rapist basically so we're talking like childhood to roughly the midpoint of his career and what years would this be 1926 into like the 60s probably okay when i watched ghost watch i could not help but zero in on the insistence that we believe children which i agree i think we should and Also, the fact that the ghost pipes was said to be a pedophile or a child molester. And again, that he lives in the glory hole. Like, what the fuck? Yeah. And (laughs) (laughs) as a free association exercise, nightmares. Horrible. Bad vibes. Um, They turned him, of course, into a cross-dressing monster rather than like a, I don't know, a BBC radio dj right seems telling and like i couldn't help but think immediately jimmy savile right so like i went to the book a lot of this information comes from the book in plain sight the life and lies of jimmy savile but i did get a lot of it from other articles too because i wanted to try to find more details about what the author dan davies was saying so Jimmy Savile was born in 1926 in Leeds, England. He was born to a Scottish Catholic family. His dad worked in a lower-level bookkeeping position at an insurance company. There is this pervasive, constant like connection between Jimmy Savile and insurance companies that seems very important. Um. It's interesting, too, because at the time and place that Jimmy Savile was born, Leeds, England, in the twenty, you know 20s and 30s, Leeds was actually known as, like, Sin City. It was one of the major hubs for, like, crime in Great Britain, actually. Really? Yeah. So we're talking prostitution, a strong black market, a big illegal gambling thing. And Jimmy Savile's dad actually worked as a bookie, like, as a side job. So this was like, you know, they were relatively poor and this was like a bad town. And so Jimmy Savile didn't stay in school. At the age of 14, he started working in an office. Uh, The company was the Clarkson Brothers who produced military uniforms. So he was an office boy at a young age. Keep that in mind. Uh, Also, from the age of 14 on, he also was in the Air Training Corps 168th Squadron. Okay, we are talking about Jimmy Savile 
literally in a civil air patrol type situation. Is that is that like the equivalent of what likes like uh, David Ferry and the Harvey Oswald were in, except in Britain? That's what I'm talking about, man. Like, yeah, except like obviously decades before. Yeah, but like, first of all, this kid has like an office job in a military related company, and then he's in a civil air patrol, and I can't imagine that they. You know, this is Great Britain. There's probably greater amounts of buggery going on. Yeah. Really fucking weird. Okay. So then Jimmy Savile worked in a coal mine, but more like he was a collier. So he was like not in the mines so much as like delivering coal, I think. Mm -hmm. At a certain point, he became a scrap metal dealer. So (laughs) vaguely related to crime, right? People always stealing metal. Um. He worked part-time in the early dance halls of the 1940s. He was also, for a time, a pro wrestler, which is interesting to think about. A pro wrestler? He was a pro wrestler, man. Where, where is he getting all jobs? <laughs> I mean, half of these are like side hustles or whatever, you know? Yeah. He was also a semi-professional bicyclist. So we're talking like early Tour de France type stuff. Huh. And he was, like, supposedly, like, pretty good at it, I guess. Yeah. Uh, it's weird, because, like, you look at him in, and the image we have of him in the, you know, is typically, like, this weedy, sort of, like, weird, pedophile-looking dude with yeah. bug eyes and, like, sort of looks like a wizard. But, like, the first <laughs> half of his life, he was, like, a scrappy goon, basically. Yeah. Maybe he had, I guess, kind of a David Icke trajectory in terms of looks, maybe. Yeah, something like that. Um, he was also a gangster, just like straight out, just sort of a thug. Um, so he got his first DJ gig through something called the Loyal Order of, of Shepherds, also called the Loyal Order of Ancient Shepherds. Now, what's that, right? <laughs> yeah uh i don't like how it sounds <laughs> right off the bat so the aim of the loyal order of the ancient shepherds was to relieve the sick bury the dead and assist each other in all cases of unavoidable distress so far as our in our power lies and for the promotion of peace and goodwill towards the human race can't argue with that right yeah what's the catch <laughs> <laughs> It's one of those like fraternal societies that sort of like eventually morphed into like an insurance company. Mm. Like there are a bunch of parallels in the U S like there was like, I think the woodsman, which was like a quasi Masonic like not super secret society that like eventually just became an insurance company. Oh, interesting. A lot of like a lot of the early versions of unions were basically like, insurance for like poor people where they were like if you join us and pay some dues like we'll actually bury you oh wow (laughs) rather than just letting you just like you know get dumped in a ditch somewhere yeah um but so the this order of shepherds uh the loyal part refers to loyal to the crown and the shepherd supposedly refers to the the nativity of jesus they say Mm -hmm. But 
I found this interesting article called The Attitudes of Friendly Societies Towards the Movement in Great Britain for State Pensions, 1878 to 1908. Very dry stuff, but insurance, man, I swear it's the key to like so much. Well, I know like all the uh, East Coast families in the U.S. that control everything were from insurance. Mm -hmm. And they pretty much still do. Um, So this article explains how the shepherds and other friendly societies were, to a certain degree, created and astroturfed in order to try to avoid the responsibility of state-ran pensions. Mm -hmm. So like they were like making these societies so that they could take the heat off and keep the state from having to have these pensions, which is interesting. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) which would probably point to something akin to i wouldn't necessarily say intelligence but like insurance companies and just like the elites sort of astroturfing them right yeah yeah and the shepherds were quasi-masonic uh they had lodges they wore regalia similar to freemasons and remind me again, what age was Saville when he was started being involved in this? Um, I believe somewhere in like the mid, like he would have been in his like maybe mid to late 20s, uh, okay. somewhere in that ballpark. And this would have been in the 1940s, right? So as of when this episode will come out, my hmm. episodes on Freemasonry will not have come out. But the social tech of Freemasonry is real <laughs> and <laughs> it works regardless of whatever truth claims Freemasonry makes. Like binding people together in a society seems to work. Huh. Is this episode going to be with Monty? Yes. Yes, it will. I'm very excited to hear this. Yeah. It's good stuff. So. He Okay, so Jimmy Savile starts DJing, basically, I think it's, you know, initially at a lodge of the shepherds. So Savile described seeing the power of DJs for the first time, and I quote, Even then, as I played the records and I stood there, I felt this amazing power. No, power is the wrong word. Controls the wrong word. Effect could be nearer. There was this amazing effect. What I was doing was causing 12 people to do something. And I thought, I can make them dance quick, or slow, or stop, or start. And all this was very heady stuff. That one person was doing something to all these people. And that's really the thing that triggered me off and sustained me for the rest of my days. So, like, real sicko shit. Just, like, yeah. not really caring about the music, but be getting off on the power of controlling people. Yeah. That's exactly the term I was going to use, is getting off. Like, very, very gross. <laughs> real, like, just the sickest way to take something relatively benign, like being a DJ. Even, like, real sickos don't talk about, like, the lure of fame in a way that that that's that sick (laughs) right and then like side note here but like there's something about disc jockeys in the old days i don't know if it applies as much now but like in the crying of lot 49 Hmm. the main character's husband is a 
pedophile and a DJ. Uh, yeah. Just in the old days, DJs used to be much more popular and powerful. And they were also super tied in with that whole payola thing where basically record companies would just pay DJs and then like have their records become popular because of just pure corruption. Like, yeah. Tons of organized crime ties and shit. Like, DJs are like a real understudied, like, little nexus for like weird stuff. And Jimmy Savile was first and foremost a DJ. So, so Jimmy Savile went on to run the Lucarno Mecca Ballroom for a company called the Mecca Leisure Group. So, like, he. At a certain point, Jimmy Savile was running the largest, most extravagant nightclub in the UK at one point. Really? Yes. And it was was this like a, was this like a silent owner, or was he like very involved? Good question. So initially, he was just running it on behalf of like management. Mm. So more like a salaried position, I think. And it's interesting because like this scene these nightclub scenes they were very much mobbed up for like organized crime and this is the scene that would like basically morph into that whole like northern soul thing where like all over the different clubs in the uk people would go take amphetamines and just like dance all night to increasingly more like u.s like black rock and roll music And then it was from that scene that, like, eventually, like, the Who and the Rolling Stones and, you know, certain of these other groups would come out. And then eventually all of that stuff would just turn into raves. So it's, like, just an interesting legacy, right? So from the book In Plain Sight, I read this passage. The Mecca Locarno in County Arcade also afforded the young Jimmy Savile access to the more disreputable elements within society. As he memorably put it in his autobiography, he became the confidant of murderers, whores, black marketeers, crooks of every trade, and often the innocent victims they preyed on. He recounted how the body of a regular female patron was found in several plastic bags in a ditch. Reflecting, it was all part of the strange adult world that I never tried to understand. It was here under the lights and amid the spit and sawdust that Jimmy Savile claimed to have received his formal education. Also, in a different interview, he would talk about, like, at one point, they, like, he doesn't really explain it, but, like, he talks about, like, him and his goons basically kidnapping someone and keeping them in his basement for a while. Mm-hmm. And and it's just like, bro, you're, like, doing a BBC interview. What the hell are you talking about? and that wasn't uh i'm assuming they didn't uh ask questions about that they didn't try to get the full story not not no no not really (laughs) because like he was always sort of an open book in terms of like yeah i used to like be a gangster yeah it's just like oh okay (laughs) interesting so the mecca leisure group that he worked for they would eventually run the Hard Rock Cafe chain. <laughs> so, like, the ubiquity of the Hard Rock, like... I think I know where this is kind of going. Oh, really? Maybe not. I don't know. What Where are you thinking? 
I don't know. Uh, go on. Okay. Because you might have something to add then, because I'm not sure. Um, is this why you were pyramid posting, I guess, is my question? No, no. Okay, this is separate. Unfortunately, okay. separate thing. <laughs> no worries. <though. laughs> I, I think, well, what I was thinking was that uh, the owners of the Hard Rock Cafe, or at least one of them, is who built the Memphis Pyramid. If I shut recall up, correctly, shut up. no, I'm no, shut up. I think I'm right here. He's the guy who put the crystal skull at the top of it. I think he was Hard Rock Cafe, if not some other like bad chain restaurant. So okay, so Sydney Schlenker. Okay, because I'm seeing there was a Hard Rock Cafe in the pyramid. Um, maybe. Mm. okay but that guy managed it who mm. i'm trying to find the article well uh, at a minimum it's freaking me out that there was a hard rock cafe in the memphis pyramid like that that's super weird okay i think it's isaac tigret one of the owners i think let me look further Yes, because he also did the House of Blues with Dan Aykroyd, who was also very into Crystal Skulls. I think it's that guy. I think. I'm 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 going to become the Joker. Sorry for the live research. <laughs> no, no, no. That's that's cool. Okay, so Tigret started in the Mayfair district. Okay, interesting, interesting. Let me reconfirm that <laughs> he did build the pyramid or wanted the pyramid. Yeah. Okay. So yeah, no, he founded the hard rock cafe Mecca leisure group, I think would end up acquiring the hard rock cafe is I think, but Oh man, what the hell? See, I didn't think I thought that was completely separate research, but like here it is. Uh, at least with some connections. You can see how my, my gears are turning, at least. Mm-hmm. Probably mm-hmm. probably thought I was insane. Wait. Oh, the pyramids. Jimmy Savile, <laughs> right? No, <laughs> well, I mean, the royal family has their own pyramids. So. <laughs> That's true. Okay. Ugh. So, also, Mecca Leisure Group would acquire... I, I don't... I think they acquired the Miss World competition. Mm-hmm. So just, you know, another absolutely like putrid industry, right? Yeah. And this, this is the one separate from like the Trump Miss USA, right? Well, I think there's a connection, right? Because I think Miss America, doesn't it, does it? No, it's like, isn't that a separate thing from Miss World or Miss Universe? I'm not sure. Yeah. See, I I don't know how beauty pageants work, but I, I assumed it was like a spelling bee <laughs> style. Right, but I think that like some of them, like I don't think if you become Miss America that you necessarily go to Miss World or Miss Universe, right? Aren't they separate? I am not. I'm not sure. I don't. I don't know either. So we'll just move on. <laughs> Sorry. No, that's cool. Um, so Jimmy Savile ended up being a director at Mecca. And he would end up overseeing 52 dance halls and 400 DJs. 
So he very much went into management there. Uh, And then from there, Jimmy Savile gets recruited to become a DJ at Radio Luxembourg. (laughs) Radio Luxembourg. Radio Luxembourg. Okay. So we're talking in the 1950s, post-World War II. Uh, (laughs) You know, all that like Radio Free Europe stuff. Yeah. Is, is is this the same kind of thing? Yes. <laughs> so Radio Luxembourg, Luxembourg specifically, where NATO is, where the pedophile King Leopold II with his genocide, you know, later on of the Dutro affair, that is where Jimmy Savile becomes a radio DJ. In fact, he's... That's... Uh, <laughs> yeah. What's what's your catchphrase? That can only mean good things. Yeah, this can only mean good things. <laughs> so he would even be known as Jimmy Luxembourg for a time. Which is incredibly like dark and fitting given what he's now known for, basically. Yeah, it also doesn't roll off the top. No, not particularly. So further, in this role... Savile was working for Decca Records in a deal with Warner Brothers specifically. So among all the things that Radio Luxembourg was involved with, which I'm sure we can assume was like some sort of Congress for Cultural Freedom horseshit about anti-communism, but like the bread and butter would have been basically Warner Brothers selling their music to Europe, basically. Mm. And to speak a little more clearly, right, like the industry of nightclubs, just the music industry, the record labels, and film with Warner Brothers, all of it is mobbed up, yeah, including intelligence ties. And it includes Jimmy Savile being an unrepentant, prolific pedophile, later on at least. Mm -hmm. All of this is like very much tied together. Mm -hmm. So... Interestingly, the first song that was a hit on his very first show was the Everly Brothers song, Kathy's Clown, which is spooky. And then later on, he would pump the Rolling Stones specifically pretty hard. And of course, that would be a huge hit. Yeah. Uh, Jimmy Savile would be a top DJ for Radio Luxembourg for like roughly a decade. Uh, during a crucial time in the explosion of popular culture. Mm -hmm. He would also, from there, help develop the show Top of the Pops, which would itself be important for breaking like the Beatles and a bunch of other British invasion music. So he's basically like right place, right time, riding the wave of just like this huge push of like, what becomes British popular culture just sweeping over and becoming pretty influential, right? Yeah. And from that point on, he would just be like one of those media celebrities that they would just have on different programs. And he was just increasingly on TV and on more and more on the BBC specifically. The The big one, of course, was his show, Jim Will Fix It, which ran for 20 seasons. From 1975 to 1994 on the BBC. 
but knowing British television is probably only like what twenty episodes, probably. <laughs> um, he would also appear on dozens and dozens of like other BBC shows. He would always be like at least a guest on everything, and it goes without saying the BBC super knew about all of his behavior. It was absolutely an open secret. Mm-hmm. The London Metropolitan Police would eventually conduct Operation U-Tree after his death to investigate Jimmy Savile's lifelong child sexual abuse spree. They would identify 450 victims. Jesus. And yeah, and Savile would meet many, possibly most of his victims directly through his work with the BBC. And there is inexhaustible evidence that the BBC knew all about it. However, as I've said before, the B- like program to chill is always rigorously fair. The BBC said there is no evidence of allegations of misconduct or actual misconduct by Savile found in their files. And they denied there was ever a cover up of his activities. Interesting. <laughs> I guess I guess that they didn't find it in their files is technically true because it's been, you know. That could be a true statement, yeah. <laughs> um, but there's evidence that they not only knew that he was a pedophile, but that he was like literally a fucking necrophile. Uh, because there was another top DJ and TV presenter named Paul Gambaccini mm-hmm. who knew Savile and he said, the expression which I came to associate with Savile sex partners was the now politically incorrect underage subnormals. He targeted the institutionalized, the hospitalized, and this was known. Why did Jimmy Savile go to hospitals? That's where the patients were. So, like, when Ghostwatch has the paranormal expert saying, we need to believe children, I find it, like, galling to the point where I can almost not believe it. Yeah. So yeah. dark and perverse. And like I don't necessarily think that was like Stephen Folk's intention. He might not he might not have known any of this technically. Yeah. That's I think that's the case, but uh he definitely had his finger on the pulse of a lot of popular culture. So I it it does make me curious whether or not he knew. Yeah, like whether or not he knew, the BBC would have known and they were like Sure, call it the glory hole. Who cares? Yeah. Like, yeah. Make make the ghost a freaking pedophile. Yeah, make him seem blue collar rather than, I don't know, literally our employee. Yeah. Plus, uh, traumatized kids accused of faking. Uh, you know. Exactly. And then literally show on camera kids faking something. Yeah. Yeah pretty uh questionable you know like there's the idea that this is putting out maybe multiple things at once right and you know obviously it maybe is doing like some sort of weird mass seance but like it's also throwing out the idea that kids be lying which like i don't know man yeah i don't i don't I don't think poltergeist cases, especially, I don't know if there's much lying, even in terms of faking. It's usually not 
like an attempt at deception. It's usually to try to please the adult in the room who wants to see ghost stuff happen. Yeah. No, for sure. And then I was thinking just as we were talking about Ghost Watch earlier, like if this were true and not scripted, how almost bizarre would it be to like go through this effort and then end up showing the kids faking it and then just like on national TV being like, yep, this family's a bunch of liars. Oh yeah. <laughs> how insane would that be? If it if it ended right there. <laughs> <laughs> like ruining their lives yeah and yeah and mostly just being upset that they're not gonna get good ratings now <laughs> <laughs> um okay so maybe before we go to the ending part i wanted to ask you okay so what do you make of the idea that this was doing a mass seance i think it was partially intentional, but they didn't expect it to have quite the effect it did. Yeah. Because I, I, I think Volk was intentionally trying to make it make a thing where you could easily suspend your disbelief and think it's real and play along with it as if it's real. Um, uh, let, me, let, me, let me find the quote. He says... Well, he expected like most people to think it's real for 10 minutes and then realize it's fake. But the result was that you either had people who knew it was fake right away or you had people who believed the entire thing, which I don't I don't think he expected that. Um, Yeah. But at the same time, it's like. You know. It's it's like the meme, you know, dog. He made the sandwich, uh, <laughs> but uh, uh, I, I I think part of it is also overblown in like tabloid press. But uh, yeah, the British tabloid press love to just make everything out to be crazy all the time. Yeah, but the British Medical Journal thing gives me a little bit of pause. I don't know. I'm kind. I'm kind of undecided because <laughs> Volk doesn't seem like a bad guy. Uh, no, if I like anything nefarious, I don't really think it would have been Volk specifically. Yeah, and I I admire his his initial inspiration was kind of like how reality is filtered through cable news or like national news. Um, he's specifically influenced by Gulf War reports on Newsnight. And they constantly mention this quote from uh, John Waite uh, when he heard the release of his hostage cousin, Terry, in November 1991. I won't believe it until I see it on TV. And that's referenced in like everything about Coast Watch uh, as being mm. an important uh, inspirational factor. Interesting is is the idea of like reality filtered through television. I don't think we necess- I don't think he necessarily knew that it would kind of uh, 
have a little bit of bounce back. What do, what do you think? I mean, like, I went into this, you know, you go into something not really super knowing where it's going to go. But, like, I kind of imagined that, like, I would end up thinking of some weird sort of thing where it's like, was this some sort of experiment on mass hysteria, some sort Mm -hmm. of like weird psyop thing. And like, who knows, maybe it was, but like, I didn't see a lot of evidence of that. That's where I was thinking. And so like, I don't know, like, I think it, (laughs) it clearly put a lot of bad vibes into British society, but like on the flip side, like we said, they were advertising it as a drama. It says written and directed. They credit the ghost at the end. Like (laughs) it's not exactly like it's, it's not super irresponsible. So like, I don't know. And like, as for like, Oh, it was too scary for prime time. It's like, okay. Like, I'm certain that the vast majority of those kids were fine. Yeah. Eventually, you know, I I mean, in fact, that's where most of the cult following came from is like kids who saw it and were terrified of it. uh, Mm. Wanting to watch it again by the time they were older. Then again, maybe it rotted their brain for becoming (laughs) like (laughs) paranormal interested weirdos like ourselves. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, that's, that's a good point. I, I can't really remember what set me along this path, but um, it probably was something like being exposed to ghost watch at a young age. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I think there's also something to be said about the, the novelty of the found footage format uh, mm-hmm. at the time. Uh, I don't think they expected it to be this like powerful <laughs> yeah no like sounds like an extreme way to phrase it but i think it's true no it's true like we talked a little bit about uh war of the worlds uh and we questioned exactly to what extent the the uh urban legends about the war of the worlds impact whether how much it actually freaked people out and how much of that was just press or whatever but like I think there is this like dynamic interplay where like maybe a certain amount of people get freaked out and then the media will like blow that out of proportion. And then people will think that it was more widespread because the media reported on it. Yeah. You know, like I don't think that many people were actually fooled by war of the worlds. Yeah. I I think it's, I think there are kind of like very similar cases where the reports are way higher than, what it actually was even though there are some like fascinating like outlier cases like full-on belief i think so i don't know if it was a psyop relatively well made yeah entertaining i mean if we're gonna get psyoped all the time at least we can be entertained right yeah even though that would make like you know adorno roll over in his grave (laughs) to hear that also, open question still as to whether it was a psyop or whether it was just a weird movie that <laughs> accidentally caused a whole stir in the public. Oh, well, that actually brings me to Playfair. 
because it sure does. Because <laughs> I, I I totally forgot the the so the Guy Leon Playfair was a psychic consultant on the show brought in by Volk because he had worked with him on a previous film. Uh, and what I found interesting about that is that Playfair two years earlier had written a book about the negative effects of television on children's minds. Oh no. I found it like a bit too fortuitous that, uh, what was, what was the book called? Oh man. Let me, let me do a quick search. Because if you look this guy up on Wikipedia, you will get a selected a selected bibliography, which is always a sign, dear listeners, that something in their bibliography they didn't want to put there. It's yeah. always a sign. <laughs> I mean, I the first time I found it is when uh, I did a newspapers.com search. I don't mm-hmm. think I would have. I don't think I would have seen it in his bibliography otherwise. It was called "The Evil Eye: The Unacceptable Face of Television" from 1990, so two years before Ghostwatch. Okay, so that sort of bolsters the idea that this could have been intentional, does it not? It, it is. It. <laughs> I mean, it's a little strange, right? That, like. I think it's clear that he was a main consultant on the show. Mm -hmm. Uh, The fact that he's involved in this like pretty experimental format for a television movie and apparently thinks that television can have like super negative effects on child development (laughs) Uh, seems weird that he wouldn't, he would, consult on something that would cause like actual cases of PTSD in children. It's a real record scratch moment, I would say. Yeah, but what what, what did you find on Guy Leon Playfair that uh, okay. <laughs> also was a record scratch moment? So we were talking about this and, you know, before we, we were recording and we were just, you know, throwing ideas back and forth. And so... <sighs> Okay, you remember, I say to the listeners, you may recall that in our first episode, Tanner and I, we talked about how, well, we asked the rhetorical question, why is everything just one or two steps removed from Jonestown? (laughs) Like every paranormal thing, basically. (laughs) And I'm afraid that we are yet again, just one or two steps removed from Jonestown. (laughs) so i will get back to that but actually i wanted to talk real quick about playfair okay so just his childhood right and his family so he was born in india british india in 1935 his dad was a british army officer but his dad wasn't just any british army officer (laughs) uh his dad worked in a bunch of capacities Uh, But one of the things that he was working in was he worked at the Imperial Defense College. And then he worked as a commandant of the Army Gas School. Gas School? 
Now, okay, what's that, you might say? Oh, it's basically the British version of the Edgewood Arsenal. <laughs> okay. <laughs> okay, so... That's, a, that's about what I expected. <laughs> yeah, so it's called Porton Down, I guess, and it's like this whole science park in Wiltshire, England. And let's see here. It is super secret. Yeah, okay. It was known... Well, a specific site on Porton Down is known as the UK's most secretive and controversial military research facility. <laughs> oh, interesting. So it's like, uh, I know Britain doesn't really have an Area 51 or, a, or a, uh, what's the other one? Plum Island. Is that right? Um, I think this would probably be clo- like, yeah, as close as they got. Yeah. Um, let me see here. Tanner, I only just found this while we were recording. So I'm like, <laughs> I was I was about to say I, I didn't hear this before. <laughs> okay, so right here, there was actually like a Scottish island called Gruinard Island where they did anthrax bioweapons testing. Mm-hmm. Which correct me if I'm wrong, Tanner, but didn't they have outbreaks of anthrax? Yeah, uh, in Britain. In the in the UK, mm-hmm. I'm actually not sure. I believe they, I believe they did, or shoot, maybe it was Mad Cow, but maybe I'm getting mixed up. I know Mad Cow is a definite, but I feel like anthrax is also possible. Yeah, this is also just the the area where they would basically do uh, like biological chemical weapons testing. So they would have like mm-hmm. sarin gas, nerve gases all that stuff (laughs) and they were it was also the same area where they would later on study like the use of chemical weapons in the iran iraq war and i don't know syria this is where they were testing and working on the ebola virus all kinds of heavy shit going on here basically (laughs) so Guy Leon Playfair's dad was commandant of the army gas school. (laughs) So his dad was spooked up. Yeah. And, okay, it doesn't stop with his dad, though. His mom was a British novelist, okay? Also born in British India. Is this going to be a a, a novelist spycraft thing? I don't fucking know, maybe. Because, like, her dad... (laughs) went on one of the main expeditions to Tibet. Oh. (laughs) Interesting. The young husband expedition in 1903. So that was her dad. So like Mm -hmm. Guy Playfair's grandfather. (laughs) Um, And then I don't know too much about her novels. I don't see too much. I think that we talked about potentially doing more on Playfair because his book that I ordered, you know, online didn't yeah. get here yet, but holy shit, is there something going on with this guy? Yeah. So the thing that made us go sicko mode, the thing that stood stood out is we are talking about Playfair and I'm just like looking here on Wikipedia. Boom. What's this right here? He served four years with the press corps for the, for USAID. <laughs> <laughs> and that was pretty much back to square one of like our first episode together yes okay <laughs> but before that i should say 
so Guy Playfair, he uh, was a translator for the Royal Air Force in Iraq. So I believe he spoke at least Iraqi. I think he might have also spoken either Spanish or Portuguese uh, because he's from, okay, from being a translator for the Royal Air Force in Iraq, he quote unquote pursued a career in journalism. He worked for Life magazine. He One does. As one does. In the 1960s, he moved to Rio de Janeiro, where he worked for the next 10 years as a freelance journalist for a number of quote-unquote international business magazines like The Economist, Time, The Guardian, The Associated Press. I'm reading from his Wikipedia here, my dude. And then that's when he then works for USAID in Brazil. (laughs) Now, who else was in Brazil in the 1960s? Well, a certain Dan Mitrioni and Jim Jones. <laughs> and specifically, he very much could have known uh, Dan Mitrioni because, you know, Playfair was working for USAID. Mitrioni, I think, was actually in some, like, Office of Public Safety or something. But, like, all the expats working for, like, bullshit cover jobs all know each other anyway. And they were in Rio at the same time. Now, here's where it gets even more sicko mode than just being in Brazil at the same time and the same city at at the same time. In Brazil, Guy Playfair became interested in the paranormal and specifically psychic healing in Brazil. (laughs) Now, I'm no big city Jim Jones expert, but do you recall that Jim Jones went to Brazil for almost no good known reason. And then he very much got into psychic healing and almost like psychic surgery. And that's where he got a lot of his tricks for like getting like a chicken gizzard and being like, whoop, check it out. I pulled cancer out of you. Like, cool. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Uh, Specifically. Uh, Playfair ended up writing a book called The Flying Cow, which is about Brazilian paranormal phenomena. Now, I ordered this book. It didn't come in time for the recording, unfortunately, but Brazilian paranormal phenomena. Tanner, could you remind us what other Brazilian paranormal phenomenon was going on at this time? So uh, maybe... Not quite the same time period, but less than a decade earlier, you got Bosco Nedelkovic, also <laughs> under the guise of USAID, faking alien abductions in rural Brazil. <laughs> in fact, one, the, one of the psychic healers that Playfair met was, now I, I don't have the book, but I've seen it referenced elsewhere, that he saw Zay Arrigo. Uh, who I find I like, I just looked at like this guy's wiki also, and it was like uh, <laughs> a lot of uh, red flags. Uh, <laughs> so he, um, according to his autobiography, around 50, around, and to, to be clear, this is in the same area as the staged alien abductions. Uh, and around the same time. He began to suffer from strong headaches, insomnia, trances, and hallucinations. 
One day he felt that the voice that had been pursuing him took over his body, and he had a vision of a bald man dressed in a white apron and supervising a team of doctors and nurses in an enormous operating room. This entity identified itself as Dr. Adolf Fritz. <laughs> uh, a spooky German doctor is inhabiting this Brazilian man's body and enables him to do psychic surgery on people. And this is one of the people play fair witness that got him interested in the paranormal. Oh yeah. Okay. It can only mean good things, right? Yeah. Oh, see, it's caught on already. I'm so glad. (laughs) Um, okay. So, but surely that's that surely that's it for Playfair, right? <laughs> no. Okay. So Playfair would let's see. Um he would write some like bullshit books like The Haunted Pub Guide or you know, crap like that. But like then can you explain his role in the again in the infield poltergeist situation? Yeah, so he was sort of the uh, main investigator on scene along with Maurice Gross who did a lot of the like recording trying to make contact with the entity through tapping um, and he, he was sort of the one that wrote the book on the case put in the popular consciousness um, and I, I don't know how happy the Society of Psychical Research was about that because I feel like at least half of them thought the case was a hoax, which honestly props to them. <laughs> I mean, yeah. <laughs> so he he was the guy. He wrote the book on the Enfield Poltergeist case. This House is Haunted, I think is what it's called. Yeah. <laughs> and that came out in 1980. Yeah. Interesting. And so this is the guy that, although he wrote the book on it, he's not in The Conjuring 2. He's not in Ghost Watch as a character. Yeah. It is very strange. But he is consulting on Ghost Watch. Okay. Yeah. But his character is essentially Dr. Pasco or the unnamed, like, research partner of Dr. Pasco. Yeah. But Surely that's it though for Playfair. You got so- you got something else? <laughs> a few a few more. So, he wrote a book with Yuri Geller. <laughs> oh yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Which I mean, if it weren't incredibly clear that he was doing some weird psyop bullshit, like working with Yuri Geller would be a main tip off. <laughs> then he wrote a book called Twin Telepathy. The psychic connection, which like, okay, he was particularly interested in cases of telepathy between identical children, identical twins, Mm -hmm. and also cases of meaningful coincidences, which like, okay, call me crazy, but was, was not Dr. Mengele particularly interested in twins? Yeah, he was, uh, a lot of, a lot of um twin experiments took place there cool cool and cool, also cool, synchronicism cool, cool. as you've stated before <laughs> is nazi shit <laughs> yet again not disproving the thesis that 
synchromysticism is some Nazi shit. <laughs> but then it doesn't stop there because he just keeps going. So he writes a book called New Clothes for Old Souls, Worldwide Evidence for Reincarnation. And the publisher is the Druze Heritage Foundation. <laughs> what, it, what does this mean, Jimmy? <laughs> I don't know entirely, but the Druze were like very much like like speculated that they did like some so my understanding is that they're like a maybe an ethnic group maybe quasi religion i know i'm gonna get butchered for this but like they were in the middle east um i think they might have actually been wiped out by isis recently and i could be getting them mixed up but there's speculation that some of their worship is quasi satanic Mm-hmm. Let me do some more on the fly re- research again to make sure. That's really odd that he'd have a book published through them, though. Yeah, at least they're persecuted. I don't know if they were actually wiped out, but yeah, I mean, right. The Druze Heritage Foundation is probably some weird British bullshit trying I to mean, like, it, yeah. It sounds, you know, how like uh, wandering bishop churches have like, you know, that the Arabic Catholic church or like, Mm -hmm. you know, like multiple different ethnic groups in the title uh, that are actually like meaningless. That's the kind of vibe I'm getting. Exactly. Like, especially if they're publishing Playfair. And worldwide evidence for reincarnation. Like, okay, sure, dude. Yeah. Um, Definitely going to research this more. Uh, And then finally he did a book on, Chico Xavier, the Brazilian medium, which came out most recently. So more on this guy, hopefully in the future. But I think the takeaway is that here we have Ghostwatch, which caused mass trauma through television on children. We have Guy Playfair, whose dad was a spy or, you know, spy adjacent or whatever. Almost certainly a spy himself. Then getting involved in all of this paranormal stuff, his role being somewhat obfuscated. He then was in Brazil in the time and place to know, you know, at least the same sort of like circle of stuff being worked on with all the British paranormal stuff. Then he goes into the poltergeist stuff. Then he's, he writes a book about TV Farming children, then Ghostwatch happens, and then he just like keeps on doing this stuff. Like, I don't know. Like, I went into this thinking, okay, Ghostwatch was not. Well, I mean, like by the end of watching it, I was like, okay, maybe Ghostwatch was not some sort of weird psyop on the British public. But like, now I'm like almost right back again to just being like, what the hell were they trying to do with this stuff? Yeah. I feel like Playfair is like a secret gift that keeps on giving. Uh, It seems like every time we do a little further research until there's something else. And like, why are we back at Jim Jones again? Uh, I don't know. Maybe it's like that thing where like, um, it's one of the Jim Jonestown is one of those like deep events that you can't like, get past like everything goes back to jfk 
everything goes back to 9-11. Maybe everything goes back to Jonestown, too. And yeah. we, we don't acknowledge that enough. I guess. Because, like, I don't feel like this is synchromysticism. I feel like this is just the same network of spies just d- doing all the fuckery. And they, they're all just connected. I mean, it's it's literally just a single degree, right? Like, USAID has both Mitrioni and Playfair. Mitrioni knows Jim Jones. And you can go the backwards compatible route of Jim Jones knows Zayarigo or some other psychic healers probably. And Playfair uh, wrote about them. Exactly. Like, I don't know, man. Like, I'm going to get to the freaking bottom of this, I swear. (laughs) Stay tuned for why does everything two steps removed from Jonestown part 11. (laughs) I was even thinking of calling this episode that. (laughs) Or just like part two or whatever. Yeah. (laughs) We'll see. I don't know. It is unsettling. I've used that word a lot today. Yeah, we are in the realm of the uncanny. Yeah. (laughs) Oh, man. Okay. Well, was there anything we haven't talked about? Oh, well, we already talked about it, but like Ghostwatch brings up Yuri Geller, Playfair. Oh, yeah. New Yuri Geller. Just small little connections, right? But yeah. I mean, Playfair co wrote books, but he also like wrote forwards and intros. Mm. for multiple Geller books. Interesting. So like they must have been like tight, which is yeah. it can only mean good things. <laughs> <laughs> uh it's all on the open up. <laughs> but uh I I got the impression and may I may be misremembering, but I think he was one of the main SPR people investigating Uri Geller. Because they, they did have people assigned to do that when he was in Britain at some point. Yeah, like, I ha- it's been many years since I was, like, looking at Yuri Geller. So, But, like, it would be interesting to track, like, when he starts, like, studying Yuri Geller and, like, how that relationship tracks, too. Yeah. Yeah. Interesting. Do you want to know? You want to know something about Uri Geller that's like a tangent, and I can't really get into it, but it is interesting yeah. to note. Always. In a more recent book, he has claimed that seemingly a ball of light in the sky when he was a kid gave him his psychic abilities, aka a UFO. Nice. Oh man. Okay, but like let me ask you this Tanner and like like broadly speaking. So, do you feel like exploring the intelligence ties and the intelligence community ties to the paranormal, do you feel that it diminishes or increases or stays the same like your interest in like Fortiana and paranormal stuff? I think it stays the same. Uh I think you can appreciate paranormal still because there is believe it or not there is stuff that isn't connected to like the political intelligences 
Uh, but even when it is, it's like just very fascinating to be like, why are all these spooks so interested in the paranormal? Yeah. Yeah. No, it's like, like whether you believe it or disbelieve it, I don't think that the spooks being involved necessarily proves or disproves it. Um, yeah, that's sort of what I think. So I like what I'm trying to say is like, I don't, feel like we're just basically proving all the paranormal stuff is fake i don't think it's that. oh simple. no the last thing on earth i would ever want to be is a debunker yeah <laughs> and i would never want to be associated with a skeptic community of any kind <laughs> <laughs> i i guess i would be only to the degree of synchro mysticism not if someone said no it's not a bunch of nazi shit <laughs> that's the <laughs> only debunker community i'll join yeah <laughs> <laughs> but yeah no absolutely like i don't think that this ruins the fun if anything this makes it more fun because it's just like what the fuck are they doing like yeah. what is this yeah and like like you said like them being involved doesn't preclude that nothing happened shows that like oh spooks were interested in paranormal events uh, which may or may not have been real it doesn't really it's not a debunking yeah no I mean I kind of just rephrased what you said no 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 well I mean that's that's podcasting I mean <laughs> what, what that's what I do for books it's like it's all good but like um, I mean like it remains to be seen to me though, whether these phenomenon would even be popularized or known without these spies. Like I oh, yeah. I don't know to what extent they're actually directly responsible for paranormal stuff being like, you know, people knowing about it in the first place. I think people are always naturally interested in it, but I think five or six of these things that we've talked about, wouldn't be known if it weren't for spies talking about it oh yeah yeah and that's just like way too broad a question like i have no idea well i i know with like ufos specifically it certainly feels like the topic was injected into the culture <laughs> in, yeah. in, in like 1947 and hasn't really stopped since then uh and you know, there's there's been CIA interest in it from basically the beginning. I forget. Didn't you just tell? Didn't you just send me some weird fact about Chrisman, Fred Chrisman? Mm, or, this, or maybe it was someone else actually. But like, oh, I think uh, was it Fred Chrisman was Mormon or something? <laughs> Oh no, Kenneth Arnold was Mormon. That's what it was. That's what it yeah, was. Yeah. Yeah. It's just like holy shit. Like, I don't know. Like to a certain extent, spooks are the source of this shit. And then Yeah. You know, that only deepens my interest in spooks and the paranormal both. Like, I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> there are no grand conclusions here <laughs> at certain points it even feels like spooks playing practical jokes on one another <laughs> mm. uh it's especially when you get into like the you know like the maury island incident yeah uh 
even like you know even like Benowitz sort of feels like that at a certain point because like certain assets to the spooks were also getting like you know just blanket disinfo yeah yeah I don't know. I'm going off on a big tangent. No, 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 no. It's cool. Oh, maybe just to close out. I forget. Oh, fuck. I don't have the details. <laughs> I was finding, like, you know, with uh, UFOs and the aviary, right? Mm-hmm. I was finding, like, aviary connections to MKUltra. <laughs> oh, like uh, like bird references. Or, like, the guys themselves being involved. Oh, in- the, lit- the literal guys. Yeah. Gotcha. <laughs> who 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 was involved? Uh, I'm gonna have to look it up. I shouldn't have brought it up because I don't remember the details. <laughs> well, I imagine it's sort of similar to uh, you know MK Ultra remote viewing to '90s UFO culture. Doesn't seem. Yeah. It seems like they're there. There's like a few holdovers for each of those. Like, there's some sort of, like, through line with spiritualism that, like, I don't quite grasp. But, like, have you heard of, like, just in general, just the idea that, like, UFOs are, like, more tied to, like, psychic phenomenon and or that they're kind of an initiation? Yeah, 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 yeah. I think there's there's a lot of literature around that topic. Um, I'm trying yeah. to think of the topic of like, like I think the Collins elite kind of believes that mm. that whole, I think that's like, you know, like a, like a mostly fake conspiracy theory, but it's still like out there in the, in the uh, ether. It was probably pushed by Richard Doty himself, if I'm going to be honest. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Well, I mean, I don't know. Like, there's no conclusion here except that, like, Ghostwatch may be a psyop. Possibly. Still still pretty good, though. Yeah. I mean, yeah. I, I've i had, I rewatched it a couple times for this, and I, I feel like I kept catching details differently each time. Uh, yeah. Doesn't really get old, maybe until you've seen it, like, 40 times. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, interesting to go back and look for all the pipe sightings. Yeah, no, that's one where I would definitely rewatch to try to find some for sure. And oh, oh, uh, also in the Ghostwatch documentary, it, uh, I think the director mentions there's like eight confirmed pipe sightings but she's certain that they put in like way more. <laughs> oh, geez. So we haven't, we have either there's like cut footage or we haven't seen every pipe sighting. It's almost like uh, weird meta textual, like stuff with like building like a spooky narrative into ghost watch. Like interesting. And yeah. For the, for the listeners, that's the documentary about the making of ghost watch. Yeah, I think it's called Ghost Watch Behind the Curtains. Which you were saying really only for the real Ghost Watch heads, not necessarily <laughs> for. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. It's a little dry, but 
there's some real information in it. Yeah. Well, I would recommend Ghost Watch. I think people should check it out. It's pretty spooky, pretty good. I enjoyed it. So I feel like it's kind of a quick watch too. Mm-hmm. At a certain point, it just feels like you're watching the news. Yeah, it's a tight, tight 90. I'd say yeah. give it a try. It's, it's a good one for October. So, yeah. All right. So let me just plug again here. Tanner, he's got a book, The 14 Influence in Science Fiction. You should check it out. Uh, also, Tanner, what is your, I guess, I'll, I'll put it in the notes. What's your Twitter handle? Uh, it's at Tanner F. Boyle 1. He's a good fellow. I'd recommend he's always posting. I try to be a good follow, but I can't always guarantee that. I feel like sometimes I'm the only one who's like being like, damn, what the hell? You found something crazy. <laughs> so, <laughs> You know, sometimes that's all the affirmation I need. Take dreams from your hair, my pretty child, my sweet one. Choose the day and choose the sign of your day, the day's divinity. First thing you see. A vast, radiant beach and cool, jeweled moon. Couples naked race down by its quiet side. And we laugh like soft, mad children smug in the woolly cotton brains of infancy. The music and voices are all around us. Scattered on dawn's highway bleeding, ghosts crowd the young child's fragile eggshell mind. We have assembled inside this ancient and insane theater to propagate our lust for life and flee the swarming wisdom of the streets. 
barns are stormed, the windows kept, and only one of all the rest to dance and save us with the divine mockery of words, music and flames temperament. Creator of being, grant us one more hour to perform our art and perfect our lives. We need great golden copulations. When the true king's murderers are allowed to roam free, a thousand magicians rise in the land. Where are the feasts we were promised?